Welcome to Eastlake. We're glad that you're here. I want to apologize in advance uh, for my voice. It sounds like I just uh, smoked a full pack of uh, cigs in between services. That's not what happened. Uh, I went to a Cougs game on Friday. I made a really smart, life-wise decision and went to the, uh, the Cougs and watched them uh, beat up on the USC. And uh, exactly. I, this was um, a picture right before I stormed the field. Um, and uh, it took me 10 minutes to get over the fence. But once I was down there, it was really an amazing experience. Um, so it was a lot of fun. So, but but it, I, I had a whole day yesterday to recover, and, and it just uh, it didn't happen. So <clears throat> anyways... Uh, if this is your first time, these like one, I don't usually sound like this, uh, but two, we're so glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time. Thanks for getting something in the mail and then being like, hey, we should go check this out because I don't do that for the most part. Like, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's awesome. I, I think it's really cool that you come and check out a church that meets in old abandoned theater. So if that's you, uh, we're glad that you're here. It's week one of a series we're calling more. It's going to be about a five or six week. I'm still, still trying to figure that out. Series on looking at... Um, the, just this, this pressing thing in life that always pushes us to want and acquire more things. Um, and is that a healthy thing? And, and kind of challenging the assumption that more is always better. So to open up our kind of discussion on this, because this is really the opening message of, uh, of a conversation that's, gonna, that's designed to last for five weeks. And so if there's more questions than answers at the end of this thing today, that's intentional. I want you to come back. Like, I have this a hidden agenda, ulterior motive. I want you to come back, okay? Uh, so that's part of it. But here's, here's the question that I want to wrestle with over the next couple of weeks, and here's, it's on the screen so we can follow along. Here it is. What is it that you want? What is it that you want in life? What is it that you want? What, what do you want? And this question has the ability to change over time because when you're young, uh, the thing that you want, the what you want and what you want is a thing. It's something tangible. It's something that can be purchased, but not currently with my current financial income. But that's why I'm going to school. That's why I'm going to get this job. That's why I'm going to save up a bunch of money so that I can acquire the things that I want. They, they typically tend to be things. As you kind of get older, what happens is um, that thing becomes less and less of a thing. Uh, and it becomes, uh, so at some point, it's I want more of the things that I currently have. Sometimes then you get the thing that you want. And by get, I mean finance. You finance the thing that you want. And then um, I realize that, oh man, not only do I have these payments, but I'm still not uh, satisfied. I'm still not happy. I'm still not something. And so it just is added on. And so it's like, I, these things aren't bad, but maybe, maybe the solution is just more of what I currently have. And then I think at some point you get to an age where you realize that what you want isn't necessarily a thing. It's not something that can be bought, but it's, it's like the higher things in, in, in the human experience and the human psyche. That, uh, but we'll get there. For the most part, what we, what we have found ourselves in, when, when I look at the demographics of our church, um, our church is in a season of life, or most of the people who are in here are in that season of life where we, we don't know the solution. You don't exactly know the answer to the end of this question, but it feels like more is a pretty safe answer. And we don't get it when people don't want more. Like it doesn't, it doesn't register for us. So like this week, uh, my wife's world was completely rocked when she found out that Chip and Joanna Gaines are closing down Fixer Upper after five seasons. They're on the upswing, you guys. They are like Everything they touch is turning to gold, and for some of you, this is news, and I just broke the news to you, and you're like, what? And you're not going to even pay attention to what I'm saying anymore. You're pulling out your phone going, is this legit Siri? Is, is it over after, you know, that kind of thing. 
uh, exactly, exactly, why, what are you doing? And they came out with this video and they begin to say, listen, uh, we love all the things that we're doing. Uh, unfortunately, TV, the, the side of TV requires so much of us that it's affecting our ability to do some of the other things and we love everything that we get to do and so um, that feels like it's just so demanding from us so we're, we're shutting this thing down. And this is crazy because from like a financial and from a, like a TV standpoint, like they've got several seasons. Of life. Listen, if this was season 13 and they should have shut her down like a while ago, I get it, right? Everybody knows that once Michael Scott left the office, that was it. They should have shut that baby down right then and there. They didn't. They kept going, whatever. This is like, Chip and Joanna, do you know what you're throwing away when you decide to do this? And and they they know. I think they're they're pretty much aware of this. Um, But they chose to say, you know what? There are things in life that are a bigger priority to us than being super uber famous and shiplapping the world. So we are going to do something differently. Um, and so for us, we're like, oh, man, I, I don't get it. And we don't get it when, when people choose to live minimalistically or on less than they could make or, or um, they use phrases like, you know, you're not living up to your full potential by taking this job in that, the Tri-Cities. Like, where is that even on a map? What are you doing? You've had friends and be like, where are you going? What is this three in one? How does this work? Uh, and, and you've said it, and it's like, well, it's it's, uh, it's not a big city, but it's a great city to raise a family. You do all the, you have all these language things that you do, and they, and they still don't get it. And they say, why? What, what's the purpose? Because they feel like you're just missing out on something, and we, and we don't get it. And and uh, listen, I don't think uh, like living minimalistically. I think it's fantastic. I don't think that Jim and Joanna uh, are are martyrs for this. I think they're wiping their butts with hundred dollar bills. I don't think that that's a problem for them. Okay, but for what for for a big for a big piece of us, like we just don't get it when people are able to perceive the culture of more and sort of resist that and say, uh, that's fine uh, for you guys, but we're going to do something differently. We're going to we're going to adjust our, our preferences towards something that we, we, we had to take self, like a self-inventory, and what we really want doesn't line up with this pressure for always uh, more and more and more. So, uh, and, and it's, I think you go through life and sometimes you realize that, uh, that getting what you want can be a problem too. Like if you just got everything that you wanted every single time, as cool as that sounds, there would be some things in life that you realize later on, I thought I wanted it, but now uh, I realize I don't. And there would be some unanswered prayers in life that later on in life, you were like, thank you, God, for not, an- ans- for not answering that prayer the way that I like you went to a high school reunion once, didn't you? Like those of you who've been to a 10, 20 year high school reunion and you saw him 20 years later and you're looking at him going, like the name tag doesn't represent the face and you're like, thank you God for not answering my prayers when I said, I, please, all I want is. And so we know that sometimes getting what we want can lead us down a path you know, that we never really truly wanted to go to and, and, and follow along with. So we're stuck in this weird dilemma. So the question then that we've, I think is worth a few weeks of our time and a little bit of attention on our end is what is it that you want? What do you think that you want? In the season of life that you're in, the job that you're in, the family that you're leading, the relationships that you're in, what are you pushing for? What, it is, what is it that, with this pace that we're going through, the fact that we're both working and, and we're like ships in the night and we're, our kids are now in soccer and school and this and that we're driving all over the place or they're young and so we're, our sleep schedule's off and, 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 or I'm single and I'm trying to navigate what single life looks like in the Tri-City. I mean, what is it that you 
really want. Now, here's the crazy thing is Jesus, um, there's this episode or this story captured by a guy named John for us. John was one of Jesus' disciples, and after Jesus came and left, um, this would be like several years. It was one of the last gospels written. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four different gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written, and John decided late in his life, I also need to contribute my side of the story of what I saw in the person and the teaching of Jesus. So he writes the gospel of John, which is in the New Testament, which is in the Bible that you have on your bookshelf at home. Um, and in his, sorry, that was just a slight, gah, see what I did there? Uh, in John's story, the first words coming out of Jesus, this, the story starts with like this, this really cool um, passage that would, would mean a lot to um, some of the Jewish readers. Um, who would In the beginning was the word, the word with God, the word was God. It's talking about logos and, and reason. He's trying to say, I'm setting the stage for what I'm going to be talking about. Then he introduces a guy named John the Baptist. This is in the first few verses of John chapter 1. John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, uh, he comes out like the, the woodwork, literally, and is preaching this message of radicalness. And everybody's like, what are you? Are you some sort of prophet or something? And he says, I'm the one. I'm paving the way of the Messiah who is to come after me and whose shoes I am un, uh, unable to even tie. Like, I'm, I'm, if you think that I'm special, wait until you see him. And then Jesus walks by one day and he goes, there he is, the Lamb of God who's come to, to take away the sins of the world. And then what happens is Jesus, this is, Jesus hasn't even said anything. He's walking along, and he, he spies out of the corner of his eye two guys following him, and he turns around to these future disciples, Matthew and John, and he asks them a question, and he says, is there something that you want? Like, what do you want? Here, here's, the, here's the crazy thing. I think that in that moment, it was probably a question of, you know, is there something I can do for you? But the way that John writes it after years of reflection, I think it meant something to him. Because I think Jesus is trying to say, as he's reflecting on what Jesus meant to him and what his personal ministry meant to them and, and how his life has changed as a result of it, he, he, he's writing this down and going, he changed the things that I wanted in life. There's talks about you were fishers, now you're going to be fishers of men. That, that shows up in scripture. But every, a, a, lot, a lot of the times he's going, what are the things that you value? What is it that you want in life? If you follow me, I'm going to reorient your preferences. I'm going to reorient the things that you care about. Follow me and prepare yourself for a reorganization of the inventory of what's most important in your life. And all of his invitations to all of his disciples, hey, if you want, leave your life and follow me. Leave all the things that are currently important to you. Follow me. I'll show you what's most important in Life. This is the call to discipleship. This is the call uh, for each and every one of us. The, the, the pathway towards what, what does Christian discipleship mean? It means taking inventory of the things in life that we value most and asking ourselves, does it match up with what Jesus taught in terms of what he says is most important in moving forward in this way? Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John and, it's, it's, and, and ask them. Uh, it's important to know what he doesn't ask them. He doesn't ask them, what do you know? Or even... What do you believe? Hey, so what do you believe? He doesn't ask them that. He asks them, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? 
Another story about uh, this that I think is important in, in terms of the context for looking at like the desires of our heart. There's a guy named C.S. Lewis who's pretty famous for writing uh, Chronicles of Narnia. He's one of my favorite Christian authors. He provides a unique perspective, the one that I love a lot, because he, for most of his life, he was a, an intellectual. He grew up in Oxford. He was a uh, classics and medieval literature. He became a Christian later in life. So he was an atheist slash agnostic for a long time, and then he became a Christian. So he's got all of this unique perspective uh, from somebody who uh, does, didn't grow up with the same assumptions that I grew up in because I grew up in a church, and so there's just some common assumptions you just fall into the trap of. He thought through some things that are literally differently in, in perspectives that I think are, are super unique. So one of my favorite books, Mere Christianity, I read it every single year. In this one, though, he, he wrote a book called The Great Divorce, and it has to do with, it's a fable on hell, um, heaven and hell. But it, I know that this title doesn't match up with the, the context because you're like, Great Divorce, oh, that's a book on marriage. No, it's a book on hell. And you're like, sometimes those two are kind of related in that thing. So it's not, that's not what he's, this, this is different, right? The story is written in a first-person narrative. It's like this guy who wakes up and he finds himself in this land that seems foreign to him. And he's trying to make sense of what's around him. And he goes on a bus to go visit hell, um, which sounds like, why would you ever want to do that? Um, but, uh, and on the bus, he's sitting next to some passengers that, that kind of reveal themselves and, and begin to expand and show some of the story about where they're going and, and what this looks like. Uh, and, and what he sees are a bunch of empty, abandoned houses. Like these houses are there, they're beautiful, and they have lights on, but nobody's inside. Like these abandoned ghost towns, all right? Um, and and it, it's like weird. It's like this weird aura feeling like, where is everybody? Uh, we were driving back from the Cougs game. And right outside of Colotus, my buddy made this comment. He's like, have you ever seen anybody in Colotus? There are houses there. I've seen cars. I've never seen a physical body walking around in Colotus. And he said it five minutes before we went through Colotus. And so the whole time we're in, we're looking around. Sure enough, not one living being out walking. Not a dog, nothing. I was expecting like this barn that says walkers inside or something like that. It was just, it was a weird dystopian future. Anyways, so this is, what he's, this is what he sees. He looks out the windows of this bus, and he sees this empty, abandoned town. And he's like, what's going on here? And, 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 and the guy describes this to him. He says, in this place, this is a world where as soon as you think of something, you can basically get it by simply thinking about it. A place where somebody can get anything they want simply by thinking of it. And for those of us, you're like, oh, C.S. Lewis, you're just a little bit early. That place now exists. It's called Amazon. You can now get whatever you want simply by thinking about it, right? And I'm not saying that hell is Amazon. There's too many people that work there to do that here. So that's not what I'm saying. Uh, the, the, the caution with that one would be, yes, you can buy anything that you want, but you still have to pay for it. So that's, that's, there's a difference here. In this world, as he describes it in this book, this fable, all you have to do is think about it and snap your finger. You don't have to say anything. All you do is think about it, and it's there, and that's hell. And, you be, and you're reading this. Like, if you're reading this for the very first time, you'd be like, that's not hell. That's hell, yeah. That's what that is. That's, that's totally different, right? But in this place, he goes, no, no, no. Carry it out to its logical conclusion. Think through this. If you could get anything that you wanted simply by thinking about it, although that sounds like heaven at first, eventually it would be hell, and here's the reason why. What he says is, is if I can think about it uh, and I can have it, nobody gets along in hell, in this, in this sort of an, uh, scenario, because you don't need anybody else. So as soon as you come into conflict with somebody, 
All of a sudden, if it's really easy for me to build a house a little bit further away from you, I can get out because you're in my way from getting the things that I want. So I snap my fingers, I think about it, and I've got a house a mile away. And then that's too close and you're too annoying. So I just move further and further out. And so it talks about how in this, in this world, like all these people are so far out, they're living by themselves and they're so self-consumed, which is what hell in his description is the self-consuming uh, fire. It's not this place with pitchforks and you know eternal burning. It's this uh, isolationism, self-inflicted isolation isolationism from God, from anybody else. That, Anyways, agree or disagree on hell, that's his picture of it. And the idea is when you can get anything you want simply by thinking about it, then you really, then, then you're missing out. Like there, there is a dark side to that that we oftentimes don't think of. So with that as a backdrop, I want to look at a passage with you today that comes from the book of James. It's a book that uh, is uh, in the library that is the New Testament, which is the Bible is simply a library of ancient documents and letters and um, stories and histories and pr- prophets and poems and all kinds of different stuff. The book of James was uh, basically like a letter written by a guy named James who happened, we believe, to be the brother of Jesus who became the pastor of the Jerusalem church after Jesus left. And he writes a letter to a church, which is, you know, for us, we're like, why would you write a letter? Why wouldn't you just stand up in front of him? And it's, it's more like a, here's how we're going to operate. This is a... Um, this is stuff that can't really be communicated in person over time. This is more in-depth, and this is what a Christian life looks like. Not only that... But this letter would have been copied and sent to other churches in, in, in the same way that we would say, hey, this was really beneficial for us. It may be helpful for you. Here, go and take this learning, this teaching about what a Christian life looks like. And so these things would spread out to all of the different churches in the early group. At some point in history, the church, capital C Church, the church as a whole decided, wait, we should, cap- we should capture some of these letters so that they don't get lost in antiquity so that they don't get damaged and, and we lose the, all of this wisdom. And we're going to package it all together in one, in one kind of one finding place. And that became what we know as the Bible. But it, it started out as a letter. So James chapter 4, he writes this wisdom towards what it would mean to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And here's what he says about human nature when it comes to fighting, quarreling, and getting what we want. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And in other words, assuming that they're there, he doesn't say, hey, in, in case you happen to fight, this is like, we know you are. So let's, let's talk about the fact that you already engage in fights and quarrels. Where do those stem from? What's the source of conflict when it comes to interpersonal relationships and interpersonal conflict? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? In other words, aka rhetorical I'm not asking for an audible yes answer or let's, create, let's brainstorm a list of things. He's going, no, no, no. Doesn't it come from something inside of you, your desires? Doesn't it really come down to you're not getting what you want? The source of all interpersonal conflict is unmet expectations. I'm not getting what I want, and it's frustrating to me. In fact, this is a great like spiritual practice. If you want to uh, take on something that's very, very practical in your life, but very, very tough to do, sometimes the most practical things aren't the easiest things to do. But the next time you get in one of those, uh, one of those fights, the next time the volume level goes up to the point where you've stopped caring what the neighbors think anymore, and, and we're engaging, it's to pause, and in that moment, each of you, or at least one of you, start with by saying, hey, hey, before we go any further, you know what the problem is here? I'm not getting what I want, right? <laughs> and they would be like, well, duh. Like, of course, that's exactly what it is. Now, we would never do that because we want to 
that appears to be selfish. You know what I mean? We don't want the appearance of selfishness. We want, we want, we say, we would say something like this. We even push back on this thought and say, well, but Brent, it has nothing to do with what I want. It's talking about getting what I deserve. I deserve this. Well, you want the things that you deserve, don't you? I mean, isn't, isn't it enough for us to be like, pausing in this moment, go, hang on, just so we're clear, I'm not getting what I want. That would be like a great base point. The other person would be like, me too, to a lesser extent than you, because you're more selfish than I am. But let's, let's walk through this. What is it exactly then that you want? That would be helpful in, the, in that spot. Then he goes on, you desire, but you do not have. This is the second half of this verse, right? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. Now, before you check out mentally, because right here, we're like, oh, well, I mean, I'm not going to kill anybody over this, right? I've never gotten in a fight where I've killed anybody. That's why I'm here and not in Coyote Ridge Prison, okay? Uh, this, is, this is important. I, I, I get it, but don't check. This is, he's speaking in hyperbole here, which is a common kind of Greek way of writing these. And, and, and we do this too. Like we, we speak in hyperbole. So don't, don't write this off. For instance, um, this week uh, or, or this season, when kind of everything's shutting down in terms of our yard, like we're so close, guys. We're, we're almost done with mowing. Um, we, we're winterizing now. We're pruning things back. And we have this attitude, my wife and, and I, we, we've tried to grow things in the back patio. Every year we try and do like tomatoes or peppers or something, and it never works, and they're always dead. And so her phrase to me is, next year, I am not going to kill these tomatoes, right? And what, when she says that, I'm like, I don't respond with, wait, you plotted to kill these tomatoes? Like you sat down and thought about how, what, here's options for me. Here's what I could do. No, no, no. What happened is you just, you know, didn't do the things it took to keep it alive, so when we say, when, he, when James is writing this and says, you don't get, so you kill, don't just write it off as, oh, well, good, I'm not murdering anybody, so this verse doesn't apply to me. No, no, no. You, you've seen how people have wanted uh, a marriage to death. You've seen, you've seen someone want something to death because they wanted something that they weren't getting. They put pressure on it, complicated things. There are some huge expectations. I want this, I want this, I want this. And for a while, they keep it going. They think, I can do this, I can do it, I can do it. But then it just wears out. And so they check out emotionally, and sometimes they check out physically, and there's a death in that relationship, and it became because of unmet expectations. We've seen uncontrolled desires kill political aspirations, take away college scholarships. Listen, We've seen it. He goes on, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Covet's not a word that we use in our English vernacular too often, like modern-day vernacular. But in this word, it doesn't just mean a covet is like I envy or I want the thing that you have. I want yours. Um, My acquisition of it means that you don't have it anymore. That's not what this means. Covet means like this unbridled passion or pursuit with ambition. You pursue with ambition, but you cannot get what you want or what you think that you want, so you quarrel and fight. Unmet expectations. It's not enough, and I think more is the answer, and and so I'm just going to keep chasing after. I'm going to keep coveting, keep coveting, keep coveting. So our summary, to summarize our problem, what is it? Where do we find ourselves? What's the issue? Our issue is that getting what we want can be a problem, Getting what we want can be a problem because eventually we find out that's not really the thing that we wanted. We thought it was going to bring solution and resolution to our life, but it didn't. And so we think, well, maybe it's just more. And not getting what we want creates conflict. So we're in this huge pickle. Getting what we want doesn't really solve the problem and not getting what we want creates conflict. 
So our conclusion to that, or taking a step forward here, then what do you do with this? Now that we've established the tension, what's the resolution or what are some steps forward? Observation. Most of us don't know what we really want because we're so distracted by what we want. I'm going to say that again because this is, you got to think through this a little bit. Most of us don't know what we really want because we're so distracted by what we want. We don't know what we really want because we're so enamored and infatuated with what we want. If you've ever held or had a, a baby, a small child at home, where my wife is uh, about, we're about eight months pregnant. Um, I say we, she's doing most of the work. But um, November 8th, we're about to have our fourth and, and small child. And, and uh, as much as we're, I'm looking forward to a, another boy and all that kind of stuff, like there's things that come with, along with a, a child who can't, that, like they hit an age where it becomes easier, easier. They can tell you what they want at like age two or three, but in these early few years, they, they know what they want. They just can't communicate it to you. And so you're trying to figure this out. What is it? What is it? What, what can I do, right? And we're scrambling because she's crying and you know, he's crying or doing whatever. And so you get the pacifier and you stick it in the mouth and they're crying out the edges of the pacifier. And you're like, this is what you want, isn't it? This is what you want. This is what you want. Holding the bottle. You want food? You want burped? What, do you, what is it? Tell me what you want. And I'm like, I'll tell you what I want. I want to watch the Seahawks game in peace. And you're not allowing me to do that. So we, we've got a conflict here. This is what you think that you want, but as soon as I put it in your mouth, it's not what you really want, and I'm really frustrated at the moment. And it's, listen, modern-day advertising is, is, really deals with this as well, right? Modern-day advertising, you're going to watch this football game tonight, and, and in between like kickoffs and pretty much every two minutes, there's going to be these commercials that come on, and they're going to be advertising things and telling you this is what you want in life. This is what you want. This is what you want to drive, isn't it? This is what you want to wear. This is what you want to drink. This is what you want to eat. And we're just so distracted by what we really want because we're being told of the things that we want. And so we're never able to get to the things that we really want because we're so focused on what we want. And that's not truly what we want. What we really want lurks in a realm that we rarely explore. This is where um, I'm making an assumption here, okay? Like, so I'm, I'm starting to make the transition from where we all nod in agreement, like, yeah, that sounds good. I'm, I'm on board with all of this towards, oh, okay, now we're taking the Christian turn. So listen, if you're not a Christian, not religious, if you're here because you got something in the mail and you thought we were giving out free coffee and, and free babysitting for an hour, great. I mean, we're so glad that you're here, honestly. Uh, and, but this is where you t- like, take it or leave it. I, I get it. But what we really want, what I think, uh, lives and exists in a realm that we rarely explore in our culture because it really can't be bought and there's no bottom line and there's no sales marketing thing and there's no, there's no advertisements, there's no commercials for it. It's something bigger. It's something, if I can use the word more eternal or deeper or spiritual. And the good news that we have, that I think the church has to offer because the question is always, what does the church have to offer me in this is that I think that we get to explore and look at, and if you be, are a part of this church community or, or a church community, we get to explore a guy named Jesus who taught constantly towards this, constantly. So back to James chapter two now, James chapter four, you do not want, or you do not have, and I put in parentheses what you want because it says it there, but I've been away from that verse for so long, so I just wanted to reinforce it. So you, don't, you don't, do not have what you want because you do not ask God. Now, pause for one second. There's an assumption there. And for some of us, would be like, if you grew up in a Christian home, you're like, no, 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 wait, wait a second. I did ask for it. Like, I asked for it, and there was silence on the other end. Don't tell me about 
unasked prayers. I have asked, and, and there's nothing, it's silence on the other end of the phone, right? Or you're like, you're right, I don't ask, because I already know what he's going to say. So why would I ask? I'm, I'm, I, I know what the uh, answer is as a result of this. James goes on, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, this verse right here contains a phrase or a word that there's not an easy translation into English from the original language in which it was written. What James is trying to communicate to a uh, church several thousand years ago, um, it wasn't in English, it was their own language, so they, th- that word isn't exactly an easy switchover, so, which is as a result, depending on which translation of the Bible you have, right? So you've got uh, NIV, you've got King James Version, you've got ESV, all kinds of different stuff. They interpret this verse a little bit differently. One of the ways, I think a better way to probably understand what James is trying to communicate is this. Um, you don't have, or when you ask, you do not receive because you ask badly that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You ask poorly. Now, here's what I mean by that. Those wants are so surface, they're not really what you want. You do so poorly. If you were to ask me in the context at my house or out to dinner with my family or whatever, um, I, don't know, I don't know why you'd bring this up, but do you play the piano, Brent? I would say no. My wife would say, he does, he plays, he absolutely grew up. I took lessons as a kid. I can play, but I would caution it, and I would add the caveat poorly. I'd play enough to be able to impress my wife, to get her to date me, eventually marry me, and have kids with me, but I do, it would not be impressive, all that impressive to you, okay? I am self-aware enough to say I play it poorly. In this way, James is saying, when you ask, the way that you ask you're asking for such stupid things. God's like, I don't, I'm not going to answer those things for you because I don't think that that's really what you want. You'd be like, no, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure I want a Porsche. So I, I, there's no question on it. I'm like, you don't have to convince me, God. Like, I'm in. I'm already, I've seen it. And he's like, I, I just think you're asking poorly. That's not truly what you want. Lurking in the shadows of what we want is what we value. And the bottom line, if you had to ask me, in, you know, so what's the point of, of this whole like intro message for this series? What are you trying to get to? Here's what I want to do. I think a self-inventory question like what is it that you want allows us to focus on the things in life that we value. It changes our perception or allows us the space to be able to say, what is it in life that I prioritize above everything else? In other words, what is it that I value? Lurking in the shadows of what we want is what we value. And you'll never get what you really want until you discover what it is that you really value. I'm going to say that one more time because this is important. You'll never get what you really want until you discover what you really value. Now, as Jesus followers, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we have the privilege to take this a step further. We believe Jesus came to point us towards what, not what we value, what we value most, but towards what is actually most valuable. We get to look at scripture and say, all right, um, I may not know, so help me reframe my mindset. The path of discipleship, the path of Christianity, what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus is to say, maybe I've been deceived, and maybe that places too much of an excuse on other people. Maybe I've deceived myself. Maybe there's some self-deception on what is most valuable in my life. And maybe I can 
allow myself the space to be in community, to ask life's difficult questions, to reframe my priorities and discover what I value most because what I value most is gonna shape the things that I want most in life. So what is it that you want? What is it that you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask each and every single one of us precisely because of this. We are what we want. One author uh, uh, that I love, James K. Smith, writes, you are what you love. Our wants, our longings, and our desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. It's not enough to monitor our behavior if you dig deeper and under the roots of how we act and how we respond to the things in life, what our natural reactions are to life, are based on the things that we value most. You are what you love because you live without thinking about it toward what you want. Let's say that one more time too. You are what you love because you live without thinking about it towards the things that in life that you want and the things in life that you love, which is why a guy named St. Augustine in about 400 AD, so we're talking 1,600 some odd years ago, writes the very first autobiography in history, not just Christian history, but like history in general. He calls it his confessions, Augustine's confessions. They're pretty famous classical literature. And the very opening few pages of this kind of sets the stage for everything else he's going to write about his reflections on who I am and, and what it's got to mean to me. And he talks about desires and hearts and, and things of our heart and how they shape us. And here's this, the famous line that you, I, I've preached this multiple times. You've probably read this before, but you have made us, he's, he's quoting to God in this, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The reason that I struggle constantly with the pressure for more is because my heart was designed for you and I keep trying to fill it with all of the other things in life that don't work, that are short-term wins. And I find myself restless and so he poses this, not question, but this statement about the reality of our hearts that there is a God-shaped hole in every one of us and it, we are always being pressured to fill it with more, with more, with stuff, with things. And when things don't work out with just more things and eventually in life we get to the spot where we're not even sure what to do with this. And he says, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So in spite of what James says, in spite of Jesus' questions for his disciples and putting ourselves in those positions, in spite of St. Augustine's quote on our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, here's some closing questions that I'm, I want to ask you to kind of kick off our discussion together. These are some things I would love for each and every single person, whether it's probably start individually, but then uh, in, in the context of uh, a conversation with maybe somebody you came here with or somebody who attends this church with you or just somebody in general, I feel like the questions are going to be general enough where you, you shouldn't go through life alone. And uh, if, if you want a really great Starbucks discussion questions, then these are some things that would be helpful to, to think through and, and walk through. So question number one, when you read this on the screen, what is it that you really want? What came to mind? In this season of your life where you're 
uh, doing the things that you're doing. You're, you're, you're grinding away on the mortgage. You're grinding away on, on, on paying back school debt. You're trying to figure out what marriage is going to look like, what relationships are going to look like, what kids are going to look like, what, how you're going to pay for college. You know, maybe, I don't know. It, all, all of the struggles that go along with that. What is it that you really want? Question number two, where are you potentially getting your own way of getting what you really want? Where are you potentially in your own or getting your own way of getting what you really want? Because that happens for us too, right? We get in our own way of the things that we really want because of the things that we want, we think we want. Number three, have you ever pursued something that you wanted that conflicted with something that you valued? Have you ever coveted, pursued with ambition something that conflicted with something that you valued? And finally, what do you really want? What, it is, what is it that you value and which is most important to you? Now, if you're scrambling to write these things down, um, don't worry. You can text the word notes to 97,000 at the bottom of the program here, and it'll get sent to your phone. Or we're going to post these in our talk space on Facebook or whatever. But some great kind of discussion questions as we digest this and begin to ask ourselves the difficult question of what is it that we want? as we take a little self-inventory of our life and uh, turn our attention to our desires and the things in life that we think are going to provide a sense of fulfillment, the question that I think we need to address is, is more the answer or is there something more? Is there something bigger, something better? Let's pray. Father, I uh, pray that you would help each and every one of us, like expose our minds to the truth of how we have lived. Let us, let us look not at what we think that we value, but at the, the behavior of our life, of the decisions that we've made, like how it's actually played out. And may the actions that we've taken help us discern the things in life that we truly do value, because it has nothing to do with what we think, but how we do. Uh, we know that when it comes to other people, don't like tell us, you know, how much you love me, show me how you can show me through your actions. Uh, and when it comes to this, that this is also so true for our life. So I, I pray that you would help us, give us the wisdom to be able to take an accurate inventory of the things that we value most and the courage to be able to challenge our assumptions about uh, what do we do with all of that. So in your name, amen.